There are multiple ways of viewing education and society and that they can all contribute to uh, creating better social worlds if combined in, um, you may say, harmonious ways. Robin Stratton-Burkessel, and in this season five of Positivity Strategist podcast, I'm collaborating with the Taos Institute. Our topic is constructionist practices as social innovation. Our special guests are Taos Institute associates who've contributed chapters to the SAGE Handbook of Social Constructionist Practice. delighted to be speaking with one of the authors, Dr. Gro Emerson Lund, who lives and works in Denmark. Gro, you shared with me via email an intriguing story about the northern Scandinavian ancient roots of your first name. Would you share that story with us now? It seems so important and relevant. Yes, I would love that, Robin. So um, my name in Danish uh, is actually an ancient Scandinavian name. Uh, it's a Viking name. Um, it was very popular in, in Norway and still is, and it's less familiar in Denmark nowadays in modern times. Um, originally, the name refers to women, a woman, and fertility. It means to grow. Uh, the name Gro is still in everyday language, referring to plants or trees growing. Uh, so that's the story of my name. Wow, grow and growing in English is, um, there seems to be some kind of connection there, some <laughs> yes. derivation that's similar. Yes, I agree. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, thanks for that. It really tickled me when I read that. I loved it. Thank you. So, <laughs> so Guru, your chapter in the book is entitled Creating School Harmony. And your professional research and practice looks into relational ways across multi-stakeholder groups that pave the way for social innovations with the intent of creating far-reaching implications beyond school contexts, as I read it, and are pivotal to co-creating our future. So, Again, something personal, Gro. I'm curious if there's something in your background that steers you in this professional direction or is still present to you today. That's an interesting question. Um, and I think that there has been a number of events in my life and circumstances. Um, first of all, during my upbringing, I, I grew up in a women's collective in Copenhagen. Uh, it's, it was a very political, um, engaging uh, community of uh, mainly women, <laughs> but also men and families and children. Myself, I was one of the children in that house. And I went to a special school, a free school, where we had not that many books. We didn't read that much, but we played out... Um, different kinds of uh, communities, you can say. We, uh, we performed relational and dialogical processes. Um, we discussed a lot of political issues. Um, we performed creative um, ways of express, express, expressing ourselves uh, and uh, of relating um, across different worldviews. I think this school made a huge impact on my way of, of living and the way I engaged with other people's uh, worldviews and expectations towards me and the society as a whole. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that seems such a liberating, advanced way of being Educated, and I'm saying educated with quotation marks around it. Yes. In fact, it seems like it's real education. <laughs> well, people didn't uh, think of it like that. I remember my father's criticism. Uh, why don't you read and write books? Why don't you learn the subjects, math and so on? My parents divorced when I was three. And uh, from my father's viewpoint and his family, they are conservatives, conservatives and 
traditional uh, values are important to to his family in contrast to my mother's family <laughs> more revolutionary uh, way of living so in between those two very different worldviews i i discovered the multiplicity of ideas and the importance of building bridges across opposite uh, worldviews and values i think mm-hmm. so in a way this made me discover that um, there are multiple ways of viewing education and society and that they can all contribute to uh, creating better social worlds if combined in um, you may say harmonious ways absolutely so did you then go looking for something um, like an orientation to the world um, did you go looking for social construction or you know what was the how did that come about for you how did that happen and who were the influences for you? It happened quite late in my life. Um, um, I took a teacher's, a bachelor degree in teaching. And after that, after some years of being a teacher, I took a master's degree in evaluation. And the main professor was inspired by social constructionist ideas. Um, this was in 2008. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly after, I accepted an, an offer from my mother, who is a psychologist, organizational psychologist. And she was at that time a Taoist associate. <laughs> she still is. <laughs> and um, working with her and my sister, who is also an organizational psychologist, I worked my way into social constructionist practices um, with their care and their education as as a guideline. And that is also the way I came into the Taos Institute. Grohl is reminding us of one of the ideas that we learn from social construction. Dawn Dole, the executive director, explains. Worlds of meaning are intimately related to action. We act largely in terms of what we believe to be real, rational, and good. We learn more about understanding how worlds of meaning are linked to action in daily life by exploring social constructionist practices. Visit TausInstitute.net to discover more about this synergy. And now back to my conversation with Grohl. So what does that mean for you? How has that informed your life, considering your background, um, and the connections mm. that you had through your mother and your sister and so on. You know, what does it mean to you to have this orientation? Um, it has been a huge privilege to me discovering social constructionist ideas in a more uh, professional way, you may say. And the, I remember initially the eye-opening effects of the social constructionist ideas. This is opening up um multiplicity in a in a much more uh, concrete way uh, than you may say positivism or the the realistic uh, paradigms the mm. the deficit discourses the fixed mindset um the content focused curriculum focused educational ideas mm. so for me it it opened up the world not only uh, in the way of freeing the thought but mm-hmm. also connecting with people around the world, sharing the same interests and philosophy. Uh, so it made a huge difference for me on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it sounds like it's something that you intuited anyway. Um, and then like mm-hmm. to discover that there's this body of work that validates yes. it all. That's incredibly freeing. Yes, it Energizing, was. Energizing, isn't it? It was, and still is. I find that energy every day in my everyday life. And I still, I'm still experiencing um, excitement, curiosity, new discoveries within social constructionist ideas. I think as, as everyday life evolves, you know, things happen in your life and events and issues, conversations. The social constructionist ideas always offer an alternative or or different alternatives uh, to how you may understand, perceive what is going on. 
And that is a, a true, real enjoyment for me, having this conversation going on between epistemologies, if you can say so. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Guru, um, thanks for all of that background leading into this. Um, and I'd like to switch to the chapter that you've contributed to the SAGE Handbook, mm-hmm. and it's entitled Creating School Harmony. And I just want to quote a piece here, and then I have um, a question coming out of it. So you write in this piece, creating school harmony is not about creating a completely conflict-free school environment, although reducing the number of conflicts and their negative effects may be desirable. The aim is to respond to interactive troubles in ways that foster a culture of learning, of care, mutual understanding and restoration of relationships avoiding harmony or disharmony, exclusion, stigmatization, and marginalization. So um, the, um, the aim to respond to interactive troubles, could you speak to this term interactive troubles? What are some examples of that that we're seeking to address through yes. relational practices? Yes, yes. So the concept interactive trouble uh, is something that two Australian researchers that I admire, <laughs> they work with this concept of interactive troubles, talking about uh, disputes, um, harassment, bullying, um, disagreement, conflict, fightings in schools, um, rule violation in schools, truancy. And these are all very negative experiences that teachers and students can have in schools. Mm-hmm. So they occur uh, on an everyday le- level, you may say. Um, and in terms of pedagogy, we have always tried to address whenever interactive troubles occur, try to address that in, uh, in ways so that we can go on with what we are together around, namely education. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that addressing interactive trouble entitle or, or um, has a huge educational impact in itself. So how to respond to interactive trouble is, is really a crucial um, element of living peacefully together in society as well, not only in schools, but in society. Uh, in, in broad terms. And what we've been witnessing uh, for the last maybe 20 years in Denmark is an increasingly interest into punitive and author- authoritarian, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correct, right. but uh, authoritative ways of addressing interactive troubles. So more punitive approaches, zero tolerance, um, consequences, and this is despite the, the negative consequences that we see from those kind of approaches. More dropouts, uh, more stress and distress in schools, uh, and more loneliness. And then um, what I discovered during my studies as a PhD student was that this is not only a Danish issue or situation. You would find that development throughout the Western society. Mm-hmm. And um, in the States, for instance, United States, uh, educators has been puzzled with the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, and I can see that development in Denmark as well, that the more punitive approaches we apply, mm. uh, the more dropouts. Mm. So just to focus on the, the, the pedagogical approaches to how to uh, address interactive troubles has um, societal um, consequences. Mm. Uh, th- that's why I find it very um, important to talk about interactive troubles. But just addressing interactive troubles in new ways will not uh, change the educational structures in itself. So there are different aspects when you talk about education. You can talk about curriculum, teaching, um, 21st century skills, addressing interactive troubles, and it's all interrelated uh, and emphasized within the specific school culture. Absolutely. You're highlighting for me 
how important it is to have a systemic worldview, seeing the whole system. So, you know, if a, a, a kid at school is experiencing some troubles, it impacts family relationships, peer relationships, teacher relationships. And as you say, it could be fostering some pipeline going forward about what might the future of this child end up. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are not finding ways to address um, these issues in more harmonious exactly. ways. Yes, and, and as um, society develops according to the lines of globalization, in, in um, individualization, which to me is not positive, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, digitization um, and pathologization, you would see more and more complex societal problems in schools. We still have an image of schools and education that fits very well to uh, last century or even before that, mm-hmm. 200 years old society. Um, and with this fixed structure, uh, old traditional fixed structure of education um, combined with the whole new way of living for young people and children, you would have clashes uh, on a more regular basis. So what we um, demand of young children and students in, in schools and education will not always fit that well with what they are interested in mm-hmm. themselves. And I think that may be one explanation why we see an increase in um, misbehavior in schools or what the adults would understand as misbehavior. Um, I'm really interested in the children's perspective of what is going on in schools. Often um, school issues, school problems are um, talked about from the adult perspective. And um, that is an important perspective, but it's, it can be quite difficult to um, pay enough attention to what children are interested in uh, what they desire from their school life. And we know that schools are pivotal, central areas of student becoming. So what is going on in schools mm. are highly important uh, for children and students. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. So um, I want to come to some of the findings and some of uh, that you that you've experienced through your research, and maybe you can share some of your stories. Mm-hmm. But I think you're making me um, want to ask this question, and that is, why don't we talk about what the purpose of education in 2020 is, and what it might be for the next hundred years? And this is a kind of rhetorical question, but has that changed since 1920 and the last hundred years? That's a wonderful question. <laughs> um, I think if you if you took a time shift hundred years back in time, and you picked a teacher from that period and brought this person to the future, to now, to the to today's schools, he or she, most likely he, would fairly easily uh, know how to conduct teaching in a classroom. It looks almost the same. You have chairs and tables and students and the board and the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, that is re- a- an image of how things did not change throughout uh, those hundred years if you look at education. Right. But if you look at other fields of of study or performance or uh, Sectors, for instance, healthcare, you would go into an operation room. And if you found a doctor 100 years ago, brought him to today's operation room, he wouldn't know what to do and how to use the computer and all the technicians that are there. So um, we cannot maintain the structures of education within the image of 100 or 200 years ago. that is just one reflection. <laughs> That's a wonderful analogy. Absolutely. I, I have another thought coming up for me. And I mean, I, what I see uh, of young, you know, young preschool or early education, kids are playing to some degree 
and intermingling and being a bit creative. It's when they get into more formal, again, quote marks around formal educational environments, like where the pedagogy matters and the curriculum matters and the measurement matters, that's when it gets into that very 100-year-old kind of structure. Yes. So, yes. Why, why, you know, what does your research say anything about that movement of, you know, the focus from early education, like preschool, early school, through to then even universities? You know, it's still the lecture theatre. It is. It is. Um, my, my own research was looking into exclusionary processes when schools uh, addressed interactive troubles. But what I did come about was the, um, the fact that if you look at Western educational systems, you would see a shift in student engagement around fourth grade or so. And from there, fourth grade, you would see an a, um, increase in boredom, uh, distress, um, lack of enthusiasm until um, university years, more and or less. And what age is fourth grade? Fourth grade would be 10 to 11 okay. years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I think that has to do with a lot of the, the things you just mentioned. So if we look uh, 100 years ahead and ask the question, how should schools and education be designed in order to um, not prepare so much, but give the best uh, circumstances for future generations. This is a really difficult and open question. And I, I think that it depends, the answer depends on who you would ask. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, mm -hmm. we, we, in the lens of the future, we can see some really global environmental challenges, climate change, consumerism, lack of resources, um, potential conflicts around the world. And we would need future generations to be able to negotiate, communicate, collaborate, innovate in ways that we perhaps cannot even imagine at this, this point of state. There are, are other issues coming through with globalization and digitization, um, the social issues, uh, extreme economic inequalities which would lead to, and we can already see that also in mm. the United States and Denmark, uh, polarizing people, dividing people, um, creating gaps between um, areas and groups of people. Mm. So education, the moral purpose of education. Uh, moral purpose of education, right? Moral purpose of yeah. education is yeah. larger than the purpose of education. You may say the purpose has to do with reading, writing, math, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, the moral purpose mm -hmm. is larger than that. And um, for me, it has to do with creating um, communities where we can live together peacefully mm -hmm. and combining worldviews um, that may be opposing but equally important. So it's, it's about democratic skills and sustainability, social Social and natural sustainability. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I think that the current educational system around the world uh, is not geared towards that yet. But we can see steps uh, towards these uh, images of of education also around the world. We see that in Western societies and also in industrial countries. So, yeah, absolutely. And the and the. The content that we need, we can access that, that, that online, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, the growth of people um, choosing not to go to universities but to, to educate themselves through um, online courses is growing hugely. Yeah. And so I know higher education is at a crossroads at the moment. In fact, you know, education is at a crossroad, as you say, right? Hack schooling and unschooling and self-schooling, as you just mentioned, mm -hmm. in higher education, I can see that this is also coming on with the with the uh, schools in Denmark. We have a growing number of students not going to school at all due to various circumstances, but they don't thrive in schools. They are afraid. They have 
uh, issues. They, 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 they feel sick and ill and they stay at home and they do their own schooling or their parents try mm-hmm. to, to homeschool them. Mm-hmm. This is a huge challenge for mainstream education. And I think during, uh, under the press and stress of hack schooling and unschooling, education will need to change in terms of offering more flexible, transformative learning environments. Mm-hmm. And um, from, from a Scandinavian viewpoint, we see developments, uh, qu- quite, qu- quite good developments in terms of creating new, more inno- innovative and transformative learning environments for students. So I think that just looking 10 years or 20 years ahead, we would see much more of that. And, um, and uh, because both students and teachers and parents ask for it. So um, I think that 100 years from now, looking back at this time, we would see education at a crossroad, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the old script is, is going to be abandoned um, in Western world, I'm sure. Great. Yeah. So um, I still want to come back to the solutions, but you, you keep offering me things that I want to bite into in the moment. This is a good time to hear from our collaborator, the TAS Institute, and the executive director, Dawn Dole. Dawn reminds us of the TAS Institute's mission and how you can connect with TAS. The TAS Institute is a nonprofit educational organization. Our mission is to bring together scholars and practitioners as they explore the social construction of reason, knowledge, and human values and their applications. If you want to learn more about our work in social constructionism, just visit us at tausinstitute.net. And now back to our energizing conversation with Dr. Gro Lund on the topic of creating school harmony with social constructionist practices. I'd like you to continue with, you know, you mentioned social innovations, and this is what our book is all about. One of the innovations that I think you are um, bringing our attention to is changing how we view knowledge through the lens of social construction. And I think you, you refer to that as in an umbrella way as relational practices in motion, you know, how we view knowledge. Mm. Um, and you have four, four things that you offer there. So are you able to talk to um, expand on that idea of viewing knowledge through the lens of social construction? Yes. Um, well, the, the big shift there is viewing knowledge, the old way, the traditional way would be to view it as content, curriculum-focused education. Content? Subject. Content. Yeah, content. Content. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah, subject curric- matter. Subject yes. matter. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Uh-huh. And subjects are fantastic. Art, music, math, everything there is fantastic. But to view it as content, fixed knowledge is, is, is the old way of of reviewing knowledge. The, the new way that are highly required is to view knowledge as co-creation. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tap into the internet every time and look up facts, data, statistics, whatever you wish to, to, to know anything about. Mm-hmm. The, the, the big shift is what can we create with this knowledge? What kind of knowledge is needed for this kind of problem? Mm-hmm. Uh, the key question of social constructionism, or one of them, is how can we create better social worlds or better social futures? And in terms of the challenges that we face around the world right now, there are numerous of important questions where the old content view of knowledge cannot create solutions. So this is one of the, the main shifts I see. Mm-hmm. You would need other skills as well, inquiry, uh, facilitation, experimentation, creation, reflecting, collaboration. So all of those skills belong to the to the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that they were not around <laughs> at this, in the in the past, but they are becoming more important. Mm-hmm. I would yeah. believe. So there's a shift in emphasis, or what is appears to be more important in order to be able to socially connect with others. And that's exactly. ra- as opposed to 
like content and subject matter specialization, which is what we're graded on, you know, as we go through our educational experience, right? Yes. Um, And then you also talk about um, value-neutral knowledge or moving from rather value-neutral knowledge to a different kind of knowledge. Um, You call it critical and appreciative sensitivity. Can you say something to that? Ken Gurdon once said, and I, I believe he wrote it numerous times, that the world is not in a need of more morality. Uh, rather, we should view morality as plural, plural ways of, of acting in different mm-hmm. moral ways. And being sensitive uh, to perspectives, differing opposing perspectives, um, ideas of knowledge, uh, criticism, critical thinking are all intertwined in how to address complex social and environmental issues. Mm-hmm. The, the ideas of values are, are, are different, I think, because value-based uh, education, how, how can you think of education with, without having some kind of values there? Mm-hmm. But the values are also political um, battlefields. <laughs> uh, so if we can move beyond values and talk about contexts and how to create context for better uh, social worlds and which values we would bring on or or act upon in those specific contexts it's it's a movement from universal thinking to multiple thinking mm. and um i i think that the this movement is um, helpful and important in terms of uh, changing and creating educational systems for the next century. What have you found from your research, Gru, about the kinds of contexts and cultures and the way that we talk to each other and how we relate to each other? What are the, way, what are the ways that, um, that actually facilitate this vision of harmony in schools? And, you, know, you might have a story that illustrates this. Oh, I do have a story. Oh, <laughs> I have <super>. several stories. <laughs> um, um, I can come up with a very concrete uh, showcase uh, from my chapter for the Sage Handbook. Mm-hmm. It's about a boy, Sebastian, who is in third grade. He's around nine years old. Mm-hmm. And um, the story is told from his teacher. And um, she finds Sebastian quite uh, difficult. He's uh, not uh, compliant to the school structures. He will make noises, play clown, interrupt her teaching. And um, she's struggling with him and um, with trying to calm him down and focus on, on the content of the teaching process. So what is going on here is that uh, she uses the script model of deficit thinking, focusing on the boy and the problem and his deficits. So I didn't understand that. Would you repeat that? She focused on what? Yes, on the boy, which is the individual, Uh the problem, the problem that he causes um, and his deficits. Why would would he act this way when she constantly gives him reprimands and guides him towards, you know, more calm uh, behavior in class and he will not obey her or comply to her? So this is a script model of uh, what I would say you, I would call problem, individual, and deficit thinking. Deficit, okay. De- deficit thinking. Deficit, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, uh, during a school process where the school altogether, all the professionals at the school worked with relational thinking uh, in an action learning process, mm-hmm. she started to tap into social constructionist ideas that her language, her responses to his behavior may have an impact on his behavior. So she tried to respond differently to his behavior. And what she discovered was during a period of time that his behavior changed. So what she would do on a concrete level would be to appreciate him when he spoke 
also when it was you know inappropriate <laughs> uh, he, she would interview him so this idea sebastian tell me more about this idea where did it come from how can you see us um, integrating that into a teaching lessons and during those new responses his behavior start changing and the case is about her reflections on what is going on and in the end her reflection she concludes that now his uh, inter interruptive behavior has disappeared what she now sees is the very engaged and clever boy with a lot of enthusiasm and engagement in what is going on in school mm -hmm. and this is also a story about shifting between uh, epistemologies or tapping into social constructionist ideas and um, develop new invitations for this particular voice becoming somebody that is also smith and hatton concept becoming yeah. somebody yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and these little changes in practices and language and responses when you sum that up it all creates new possibilities of relationships and and engagement absolutely yeah. that's a terrific story yeah i mean it shows to me that we have habits of seeing yes right and yeah. What's so insightful is that the observer impacts what or who's being observed. And we don't think that. We think we're, again, this is this neutrality, I guess. We think we're watching somebody and not realizing that how we're watching them and what we're saying actually has an impact on what they're doing. Exactly. That's spot on. And that is a shift from the positivistic paradigm or realism as epistemology towards a more social constructionist viewpoint where mm -hmm. we understand that our own viewpoints and perspectives actually shape what we are observing. Yeah. <laughs> and this showcase with Sebastian is illustrating this shift. Um, and if you sum that up to all professionals in a school mm -hmm. or as citizens in a society, you could easily imagine the huge impact that would have ultimately on processes of relating together. Um, and it's very small changes, step by step, but with huge impacts in the end. And yeah. that's the optimistic um, and, um, and fruitful future that we can tap into. Yeah. You remind me, one of the questions we ask often at the end of some appreciative inquiry experience is what's the smallest thing or the smallest action you can take that might have the biggest impact? Exactly. And I think you're highlighting that too, um, that it, often it's just the small shifts. Um, and it's just that awareness we have about our own behaviours and our own thinking. So it's all wonderful. So I have another question for you. Yes. Why did you call your chapter, why did you not call your chapter co-creating school harmony? Well, I'm... <laughs> so this question is great because I asked the editor the same question in Italy. I was <laughs> I, I was given that title for the chapter and uh, had no influence on it at all. <laughs> uh, I understand that. Having published a book, I had very little influence on what it looked like, what the title was, what the image was, or anything exactly. Like that. And I struggled with the word harmony because I would never have used that word myself. Oh, but, this is so interesting. Yes, but working my way into the word and the concept of harmony, I could see how it could work uh, in contrasting disharmony. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the, the thing, my, uh, my worry about the word harmony is that it's so idealistic. Mm -hmm. And um, if you have 300 or 1,000 students in all ages and a lot of structures and curriculum and, and 300 teachers and I don't know how many parents, how can you even imagine <laughs> a conflict-free school? You know, when, where people engage, there will be conflict. The, the, the big issue, the big question is how do we come up about them? How do we address them? How do we solve them in peaceful and worthy ways mm -hmm. so that we do not exclude um, wrongdoers. And that is another word that I'm not happy about, but it is there, it's out there in pedagogical literature. Mm -hmm. um, and when you talk about restorative practices, um, there are also different 
traditions there, and one of them are using the word wrongdoers. From a social constructionist perspective, you would be more reluctant using that word because mm. who is doing the wrong thing uh, depends on perspective. And um, you would address every incident or conflict with the idea, the assumption that all parties in the conflict had good reasons for whatever they did seen from their own perspective. Mm-hmm. So this is one way that social constructionist ideas will challenge your language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and a, another thought that you trigger in me is from the practice of neurolinguistic programming. I don't know if you're familiar with that that body. NLP. Yeah, NLP. The, yeah. Yes. And know. you know, people do the very best they can with the resources they have. Yes. And yes. some of us have more resources than others, and so how we then factor that in is so important when we look at it through this worldview. Yes, I totally agree. And I think that schools, they they are wonderful places for children to relate to each other and to learn skills and to build up what you might call social capital, um, social skills, human, uh, human skills, um, and to strengthen those together. And as teachers and school professionals, it's, um, it's a wonderful gift and task to facilitate such processes. Um, there are so much richness in doing so. Yeah. So a couple of more thoughts as we begin to um, have to, you know, wind up, unfortunately, is that, um, you know, while the chapter in your book emphasizes the, needs for, the need for relational and restorative approaches to schooling, Mm-hmm. Um, I notice it's not education, but schooling, mm-hmm. and highlights how social constructionist assumptions can lead to inclusionary practices and more harmonious school cultures. Why limit the context to schools? It's a it's a wonderful question. Um, what I about the educators? You know, we yes. we're looking at the kids. What about how we educate those who go in and educate, or you know? who are there leading and helping the kids um, be the best that they can be. And then they go on into organisational context, right? You mentioned your mother and your sister are organisational psychologists. So I'm sure, you know, it's like we need this everywhere. And your, your specialisation is schools. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, you, you could look into leadership, um, collaboration, team team collaboration, uh, organizational development, community building projects, uh, relational welfare all around. Mm-hmm. And these ideas can offer perspectives, practices, new ways of, of, of performing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's highly needed as I, as I uh, see it. But in schools, it's like changing the church, changing the schools. That's equally difficult. Wow. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> basically, highly regarded uh, traditional institutions. Yes. Where, where traditions and norms and values are based on hundreds of years of practices. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I think that you, I know you work with appreciative inquiry. Mm-hmm. We've had 40 years of um, experiencing appreciative inquiry in organizations and it's still prosperous, developing, offering new possibilities. How come it had had that little impact on schools yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. <laughs> oh, I just I just offered it in there, and I think you know we we're in agreement there. This is this is so applicable, um, and it's interesting. You know, we talk about context is really important, but this this way of being and working is boundaryless in a way. Yes, when you take this is. perspective. Yes, it is. Mm. Another way of looking at at your question, just why schools, is that that. Even though we see more students and children not coming to school, the large percentage are still going to school. And these are the future generations of citizens. And um, what we are doing in schools will model and form the way of engaging as adults. So, yeah, yeah we, can, we can work in various 
contexts and sectors and we can do organizational development in healthcare and we should do that. That's important. Uh, but we still have an extra job or task uh, to create the best context for students to, to, to grow up. Um, and schools are important in that perspective. Sure, yeah. So what other innovations or shifts in this, um, in this sector excites you or inspires you? In, in education, as yeah. in schools? Yeah. Oh, there are uh, so many things that inspires me <laughs> and excites me. Um, I see wonderful, wonderful uh, innovation in Denmark and Norway and in the States and in New Zealand and Australia, where I, I have friends and scholars that I work with. Um, and they are all tapping into relational ideas or social constructionist ideas in various ways. So the multiplicity of that is just huge. Um, one which you could call that strength-based pedagogy, mm-hmm. uh, where you focus on student strength and uh, interests and engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, another one would be Cosmo Kids, which is... Um, a CMM approach to education, preschool children and school children, as well as uh, teachers in communication skills. And uh, throughout that uh, development of skills, um, totally new ways of engaging with subjects occur. Um, You can also see projects that are um, emphasizing design, thinking, uh, transformative learning, Mm-hmm. Um, innovation uh, of of um, technology and social technologies. Yeah. So there are so many <laughs> wonderful yeah. things to talk about. Yeah. So it's this multidisciplinary approach. I love that. Yeah. Um, I think we're growing. We're getting better at recognizing the value of that. That's that. What that's what excites me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's good. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to mention, Gro, that um, you wanted to bring up and I've distracted you or um, <laughs> taken away the opportunity? <laughs> hmm. Oh, that's also a good question. I think we could continue such a conversation for hours. There's so many things to talk about and to explore together. And um, one thing that I learned is that practitioners, in various fields are very knowledgeable. If you talk to any teacher, she or he would have so many ideas of how to transform teaching. But the the structures of the organization Mm -hmm. uh, prohibit innovation. So I think we should move beyond talking about (laughs) um, teachers' competences to talk about how to organize um, educational systems and schools that empower teachers to to explore their, their potential uh, with together with the students. So I would love a conversation <laughs> about uh, structuring or organizing mm-hmm. uh, schools in new ways. Yeah, that's really important. You know, the designing of the experience and structuring the experience. It's interesting, you know, when I interviewed Ken Gergen some time ago, probably four years ago or something, he said to, because, you know, he's a scholar researcher and and an educator, but he said to me, you know, we need the scholars and the researchers, but we really need the practitioners. I so much agree. I love that. You know, it made me feel, oh, my God, I'm doing something valuable here. (laughs) (laughs) I consider myself as a a practitioner as well. Um, Yes. Being a teacher originally and working so closely with practitioners. Mm. Uh, But but, uh, the, the... the mix of research and and theory and practice can make the whole conversation so so rich and the the perspectives of practitioners are just so important mm-hmm. uh, there's so much to learn from embodied experiences yes well said thank you so one of the things we didn't talk about, but um, I'll um, there'll be references on the show notes page of 
that accompanies this episode. And you can access this, that by going to positivitystrategist.com slash podcast. And um, there, among other episodes you, for this season five, you'll find this conversation, um, links to this conversation with Dr. Gru Emerson Lund. And you'll find that she's um, she's a member of a number of networks, one of which is called Noise. I don't know how you say that in Danish or That's elsewhere. correct, Noise. Yeah, yes. which is the network of independent scholars in education. I guess that's one of your communities, right, where you share these learnings and these practices. It is. It's a network of independent scholars in Denmark. We also have Professor John Winslade as part of the network. Uh-huh. And um, we are all educational researchers and we meet uh, every uh, six week. <laughs> so we have um, a close collaboration and it's uh, really an inspirational network as the Taos Associate Network and the Taos Institute Network. Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning mm. that. Yes. So, yes. Yeah, so you'll find some of these really valuable links and that one you can see an English version of that. And then there are some papers and, of course, reference uh, and and Gru's book too, which is in Danish, right? You haven't translated that into English yet. I have a number of books in, in Danish, uh, although my dissertation is in English. And um, I also published a couple of uh, chapters and articles in, in English for people not coming from Denmark being able to read it. <laughs> yes, but I'm hoping there'll be a lot of Danish listeners who speak English and who also want to read um, your Danish um, that would materials be lovely. as well yeah. as English. So Gru, Gru, with this beautiful name, thank you so much for being um, having this conversation with me today. It's been totally uplifting and inspiring for me. I'm very grateful. Thank you. It was a huge um, pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much. What an absolute pleasure it was to have that conversation with Dr. Gro Lund. If you'd like to learn more about Gro's inspiring work, do visit us at positivitystrategist.com slash podcast. Now, next time, our distinguished guest is Dr. David Hooker from Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. David talks to us about transformative community conferencing. You'll definitely want to hear this one also. So thank you so much for listening and I'm signing out for now.